Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is October the 12th, 2023, a Thursday. Uh, if one was to generalize about American 20, late 20th century history, the 60s and 70s, um, one might define it as, at least in my view, the Dylan era. Of course, uh, we would be referring to the great Zimmerman, Bob Dylan, um, who has defined his age, our age, in terms of his music. He's still doing concerts. In fact, he did one in Milwaukee uh, earlier this week. Um, I wonder whether anyone has written a book called The Dylan Era or The Dylan Epoch. It would be D-Y-L. A -N. But of course, there's another way of thinking about modern history, not built around Bob Dylan, but another Dylan, a Dylan who is much less well known, a man called C. Douglas Dylan, who was an influential diplomat uh, and politician in the Eisenhower, Kennedy and Johnson administrations. And appropriately enough, someone has written a book called The Dylan Era, Douglas Dylan in the Eisenhower Kennedy and Johnson administrations. Richard Aldous has the book. He teaches history at Bard College in upstate New York in a beautiful part of the, the world near Hyde Park where uh, uh, FDR had his estate. Uh, Richard, when you define this term, the Dylan era, I mean, Dylan is an interesting politician and we'll get into him. Do you think he really shaped the era? I know this was a term that was actually invented by a European politician uh, to describe shifts in American policy towards Europe. Was this Dylan, your Dylan? Was he as influential as my Dylan, Bob Dylan? Well, I don't know whether he was as influential as uh, Bob Dylan, to be honest with you, Andrew. There are not very many people uh, who've had as much influence as Bob Dylan. But yeah, D Douglas Dylan really is uh, a, a significant figure, as you, as you said uh, there. The phrase is not mine. Uh, it comes from uh, Walter Holstein, who was the president of the European community. Uh, and it was picked up as the image on, uh, on the screen shows by the New York Times, um, and they in were March uh, 1960 for those people who were just listening. And they were they they were looking at um, they they were looking not just at American policy and American politics. They were also looking uh, at the broader um, international world. That Dylan was somebody uh, who had a tremendous impact on American politics, but he also helped to uh, found the OECD. Um, he was involved uh, in setting up the Alliance for Progress. So there's this kind of tremendous international impact that he has, and that was the reason. And why they used the used the phrase, and it just seemed like a seemed like a really good title uh, for the book to capture his uh, sense of influence. Richard, as we speak, the Republican Party seems to be continuing to tear itself apart to destroy itself. Was one of the reasons you wrote the book as a historian to remind ourselves of a very different kind of Republican Party and a very different kind of. A Republican figure. C. Douglas Dillon seems to epitomize the East Coast waspish, waspish nature of the post-war Republican Party. Is that fair? 
I, d I think there's a certainly an element uh, of truth in that that I mean he's clearly he's a waspish figure he comes from a, a very wealthy background his father uh, Clarence Dillon is one of the richest Americans um, in the top 50 richest Americans in fact so he comes from that background um, and you know I think one of the things that's really interesting about him though is that it's philosophical as well as um, as as well as being political that you know this is kind of somebody who believes in service it's kind of very patrician way of kind of looking at things uh, he's very much a kind of a moderate someone who's in the center uh, of the Republican Party and so you know here's here's somebody who kind of sees, uh, that yes, they've they've got incredible privilege, but they also see themselves as being uh, in service. The other thing that's really interesting about him, though, of course, Andrew, is that he's he's a centrist, but he's also someone who speaks to a different kind of bipartisan politics. That uh, his first political appointment was in the Eisenhower administration. He was the ambassador to Paris. Uh, then he became uh, the number three, and then number two in the State Department. Uh, working with John Foster Dulles um, under Eisenhower. But then he goes into the Kennedy administration. Um, he's still a Republican, but obviously that is a Democratic uh, administration, as was um, Robert McNamara, the Secretary of State, uh, Secretary of Defense, um, their national security advisor, George Bundy, was also a Republican. So as you said at the beginning there, it's a very different kind of politics. Is there... Oh. Is there a degree of nostalgia for you, Richard? You've you've written extensively on both uh, modern British and uh, American politics. You wrote a very well received book on uh, on Schlesinger, uh, Arthur Schlesinger, the imperial historian. Uh, was part of the reason you chose this project to remind people of an alternative Republican tradition or narrative? I think that, you know, in, in some ways you're always struck as a historian by uh, parallels, but ultimately the reason why you write books is because you're interested in the period that, you know, most of the, most of the, the work or a lot of the work that I've done uh, has centered in the 1950s. As you say, I'm a British and American historian. A lot of the work that I've done uh, has been on Anglo-American relations. I've written specifically on Britain and specifically uh, you on... wrote a wonderful book on Thatcher and Reagan or Reagan well, and Thatcher, as you put it in your title. Well, and 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 there's a you know there's a good example of the kind of the way that the two come together. But but David Reynolds, who was a historian that I was very much influenced by um, uh, when I was younger and still to this day, um, always used to argue uh, that if you were going to write about Anglo-American relations, you had to do both sides properly. That you too many Anglo-American historians do Britain, and then they do a little bit of, of the United States, but they don't do it properly. So I've always tried to be a, a historian who works in the archives in the UK, works in the archives in America. Sometimes, as with this book, I'm just writing about the United States. Sometimes with other books, I'm just writing about Britain. But you have to do both if you really want to understand that Atlantic world properly. I don't suppose that uh, you've written this book on Thatcher and Reagan. I don't suppose Mrs. Margaret Thatcher or Ronald Reagan would have been particularly keen or comfortable with C. Douglas Dillon and, and vice versa. What do you think he would have thought of them? 
Well, it, uh, funnily enough, he did get on very well with Reagan on a personal level. Because, but everyone did. I mean, because, it was a because, man, right? That's right, because Reagan and Dylan both had this kind of sense of civility, um, which um, is, is something that is increasingly disappearing out of public life or certainly political life uh, today. But you are absolutely right that one of the reasons that Dylan was able to square the circle um, with being a Republican in, an, in a Democratic administration, including in 1964, uh, when uh, he carried on as Treasury Secretary for uh, Johnson, uh, was because the republicanism of Barry Goldwater uh, was something that he found to be very... Um, uh, yeah, antithetical to everything that he believed as a Republican. Uh, whereas, of course, for someone like Reagan, who uh, in some ways came to public prominence politically, obviously he was famous as an actor, but politically because of the speech that he made uh, in 1964, Goldwater, in some ways, marks the beginning of that different kind of republicanism. So there were, you know, there were continuities uh, in in the in the nineteen eighties, the tax reforms that um, that uh, James Baker, as Treasury Secretary, implemented under Reagan. They directly look back to what Douglas Dillon had done as Treasury Secretary and used him as an as as an inspiration. So there were continuities, but there was also a, a different kind of republicanism that was beginning to be. Uh, developed exactly as you say. As historians will always remind us, Richard, change and continuity, that's the nature of life, the nature certainly of history, or at least responsible historians. And you are a very responsible historian, and that certainly comes out in this new book uh, that you uh, have just published, The Dillon Era, Douglas Dillon in the Eisenhower, Kennedy and Johnson administrations. Um, Richard, remind us about this man. You've mentioned that he was the son of a very famous and wealthy father. Where was he educated? And did he have an ideology or was it just one of service? In some ways, I guess, most like uh, uh, the Bushes, uh, who, who I'm sure he knew very well. Yeah, so I mean, he went through uh, the typical kind of uh, elite education that you would expect. He went to a Groton school and then on to Harvard, uh, then immediately goes into uh, his father's um, bank, uh, investment banking firm, Dylan Reed, uh, which is one of the uh, the most high profile and successful uh, of those of those firms uh, on Wall Street. But uh, he then uh, also during the Second World War, he does he does service. So he does all of the kind of things that uh, in many ways you would hope and expect uh, of him. Um, but it, I think the thing is that he feels that he really needs to make his own mark. And that's the reason why he wants to go into politics, to do something uh, which is going to allow him in some ways to get out of his father's shadow. Ironically, in order to do that, he has to use his father's influence. His father uh, had been a, a donor to the Eisenhower campaign in 19 uh, in in the 1952 uh, presidential election. Uh, there's a tradition in in the United States that very often um, uh, big donors uh, are rewarded with ambassadorial appointments. Um, and and Clarence Dillon gets the 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 Paris Embassy uh, for his son, but I think that there really is. is... Um, you 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 slip that one in, uh, uh, Richard. I mean that's a pretty big deal, uh, and it kind of it all in in an odd way, 
there are lots of similarities with him and JFK, both from very powerful, wealthy families, both in the shadow of powerful fathers, both making a mark in, in public service. Did he have quite a lot in common with JFK, at least in terms of his breeding and background and perhaps personality. I'm not sure if he was as much of a womanizer as JFK. No, and, and actually one of the things that's interesting about working on Douglas Dillon is that he does seem to have this impeccable sense of, of private morality as well as, as the kind of the public morality that uh, many admired about him. Um, and, and you're right to, uh, to draw attention. I mean, it's the reason why I'd, I, I kind of mentioned this, this element about how he gets into politics, because it, it does, again, uh, speak very clearly to the way in which he's able to, to use his position and his father's position uh, to get ahead. And you're right that the parallels with the Kennedys are very clear. In fact, it's one of the striking things is that um, in the Kennedy administration, Jackie Kennedy said that Dylan was the only person in the cabinet that Kennedy was personal friends with, that and that who they dined with um, privately in the White House and, and so on. So there was a, a very real connection. Um, and, you know, again, you're right that someone like John F. Kennedy is able to use the fact that uh, his father is a multimillionaire, a billion, multi-billionaire in, in today's um, in today's money uh, to facilitate the uh, the career of his uh, of his of his children, um, but I think that there are many um, rich uh, children of rich fathers who go into politics and make an absolute uh, mess of it because they they lack either the talent or the application to make a success of it and. Clearly, John F. Kennedy is someone who rises to the to the highest office uh, in the United States. Douglas Dillon occupies one of the uh, one of the highest cabinet uh, positions, and you know, even somebody. The the reason, really, uh, you were asking before about why I wrote this book. One of the immediate reasons um, was because Schlesinger, who I'd been working on before, uh, had opposed the uh, appointment of Dillon to the Treasury. Um, uh, but within a year, he was calling him. He was calling himself Dylan's greatest fan, and that uh, I couldn't understand why Schlesinger, this kind of very clear liberal, came to uh, almost revere this conservative figure uh, in Dylan, who um, has almost been, um, if not forgotten, in terms of the Kennedy administration, very much underappreciated, very rare, very rarely written about. Overwritten, uh, perhaps not overwritten in, in quite literally. He's been written over. I, I, I think you, actually, you, you I think that's. Covered him. I think that I think that's a really good, a really good phrase to use. And you know, some part of the reason for that, of course, is the way that the Kennedy administration ends. That uh, with the the tragedy of the assassination, so much of the Kennedy administration simply gets swept into the tragedy of that story, uh, and then looking forward, uh, gets swept up into uh, LBJ and the Vietnam War. Uh, and everything that that entails. So these these rather more um, uh, modulated uh, characters in governments and policies, which at the time, like the tax reductions, for example, that saw taxation brought down from 91, um, 91 uh, cents in, in um, the, the dollar uh, to 70, um, which was the biggest tax cut uh, in American history, 
uh, that these these kind of things just tended to get forgotten about when everyone uh, started thinking about, first of all, Camelot and then the so-called dark side uh, of Camelot. You talked about a fan of Dylan, your Dylan, of course. Uh, the other Dylan has many fans. And the other thing that Dylan, with a Y and with an I, have in common is they both had Jewish backgrounds. Bob Dylan's always been somewhat ambivalent, as he's ambivalent about everything, about his personal life, about his Jewish identity. Did Dylan ever articulate any interest in the fact that a couple of generations back his family was Jewish? It was it was certainly not something that uh, he in any way tried to uh, to hide. I mean, his uh, his grandfather uh, had arrived in the United States from Poland um, uh, and, as you say, uh, was Jewish. Uh, but he by this stage, the family had converted to uh, Episcopalianism, Anglicanism, um, and he was a regular worshipper. He, he went to church every Sunday as an Episcopalian. So, you know, his own personal faith uh, was was um, was Christian. But uh, he was he, as I say, he did not try to to hide the Jewish elements. Arthur Schlesinger, for example, was kind of somebody um, who would very often bristle. Um, when uh, uh, American uh, Jews tried to claim him or claimed him uh, as uh, somebody who was Jewish because he came from a similar uh, kind of background. Uh, Dylan, Dylan wasn't like that. Um, he was somebody who accepted um, quite happily um, where he came from, even though he, even if his own faith was, was different. We are speaking with uh, Richard Aldous, who is the author of a really interesting new book on not Bob Dylan, but another Dylan, Douglas Dylan, uh, and he's entitled The Dylan Era. I want to thank the sponsor of this show, uh, The Podcast Disorder. We've done some shows around Jason Pack and some of his themes. Uh, it's an excellent podcast. I strongly suggest everyone gives it a chance in our age of profound and troubling disorder. I'm going to run a short ad for disorder, and then we'll be back with um, Richard uh, uh, Richard Aldous to talk more about uh, Dylan, the Dylan era, and what it means for today. So don't go away, anyone. I'm Jason Pack. And I'm Al Hall, and this is Disorder, a brand new podcast from Goalhanger, where we'll be connecting the dots using our own experiences, as well as talking to people at the forefront of global affairs. All seeking to work out, why are the world powers no longer coordinating as they once did? How did we get here? What can we do to fix it? The Disorder podcast is out now. Make sure you follow us so you can get every episode right now in your feeds. Some historians, Richard, have actually traced our contemporary disorder back to the period where your Dylan was around and this shift in the Republican Party from a, a, a centrist party to one that embraced the free market, what people call neoliberalism. Is the Dylan era in some ways a reflection of that shift from the centrism of Douglas Dylan and Eisenhower to the right wing pro-market radicalism of Ronald Reagan? 
I mean, you're, uh, we talked earlier about how these things uh, are always about continuity and change, that uh, clearly the Republican Party does change uh, in the period uh, after Dillon. But one of the reasons why uh, why it changes is because the United States changes, that um, we go when uh, the US goes through the 60s uh, with uh, civil rights, the Democratic Party uh, itself changes. Uh, after all, um, in the in the 1960s, uh, the Democrats still had a, a, a huge number of segregationists as uh, leading members of the party. Uh, so I think that you know the the Republicanism does change, uh, Nick, but Nixon um, uh, sets many of the parameters for Republicanism that exists to this day, and he's a very different kind of politician uh, to Reagan. Reagan, Reagan in the 80s develops this more free market uh, way of thinking things, but he's succeeded by uh, George H.W. Bush, um, who's much more in that Dylan kind of mold. So things uh, tend not to move, uh, I always think, as a, as a historian from A straight to B. They tend to zigzag um, in, in ways that uh, very often uh, are uh, more interesting for their complexity, I think. In a couple of weeks, I have a show with the New York Times uh, economics writer, columnist, David Leonard. He has a fascinating new book out, out about the death of the American dream. If your Dylan, Douglas Dylan, had an ideology, was it of the American dream, the idea that anyone could make it, any immigrant? I mean, at some point, presumably, even his family was poor. Yeah, his his family they they were poor, and and his own father uh, was a good example of somebody who um, uh, fulfilled that idea, that traditional idea of the American dream, kind of coming really from uh, very little and becoming one of the richest men uh, in the United States and by extension uh, in the world. Um, I, I think as well that that Dylan's way of seeing the world and and JFK is similar. Uh, was that um, that that uh, that it, the the philosopher Richard Rorty talks about this, where he uh, he says that uh, for that time uh, you had kind of people agitating for change from below, but there was a recognition that those who were at the top of society had to lend a hand too, and that really I think is what Dylan uh, and Kennedy and and those kind of characters uh, really saw themselves as doing. They came from elite backgrounds but they understood uh, that they had to lend a hand in order to make lives better, life better uh, for uh, ordinary people. And, you know, the criticism uh, of them uh, is that things move too slowly, uh, that they were, they were too slow in recognizing the, um, the importance of change around issues like civil rights and voting rights and, uh, and so on, and alleviating the, uh, the, um, the terrible levels of poverty uh, in the United States, that they saw changes coming through evolution, uh, coming slowly with different classes working together. So it was a much more consensual way uh, of, of doing things. They did have real achievements, uh, whether those uh, came quickly enough is something that historians, even now, uh, are still arguing about. Yeah, some people might describe the, the reform you talk about as, as a kind of euphemism, given the profound uh, inequalities. When you look at the guy, he looks like a, a classic white male patrician. Did he have strong feelings on race, as you note? Know, the, the 
the Democratic Party in the 1950s was still maintaining uh, not just injustice, but a deeply authoritarian political system in the South where blacks essentially weren't able to vote. They'd been written out of the democratic system. Was he outraged by that? What what troubled Dylan? Did anything? I think that the thing that that troubled Dylan uh, the the most was the just the the sense of unfairness actually. And I wouldn't I wouldn't so I wouldn't want to use the word outrage. I would say it was the unfairness of the system that when he kind of become when he becomes Treasury Secretary. Um, he's involved in a conversation with John F. Kennedy where Kennedy has pointed out that when the Coast Guard marched past the, the presidential plinth uh, on um, Inauguration Day, um, that, the, that, that the Coast Guard was entirely white. Well, Dylan, as Treasury Secretary, had responsibility uh, just taken responsibility for the Coast Guard, um, and so he he recognises the unfairness of that, and so you know introduces um, uh, um, schemes to try and encourage more uh, African American entrance into the Coast Guard. Similarly, with the inland revenue, he's horrified when he realises that the kind of social clubs that uh, the inland uh, that the um, uh, the uh, IRS uh, have the revenue service uh, have. Sorry, my British um, uh, with the uh, with the uh, phrase there. But the um, the that the revenue service the IRS has um, when he realizes that they're segregated, um, it, he recognizes that that is something that cannot happen in a federal agency, and so he immediately issues uh, instructions that this cannot this cannot be allowed to continue. So, you know, these are fairly small scale uh, reforms based on unfairness. Uh, he does try to bring through um, economists and help um, promote their careers, um, but it's it really is once the uh, the civil rights legislation of the sixties comes on into uh, comes comes into action uh, that things really begin to to change in the United States. On the other side, and you just did an interesting review in the Wall Street Journal of a of a book into the bright sunshine about Hubert Humphrey, of course, was a Democrat, and his as a politician unwillingness to accept the uh, the racial status quo uh, within the Democratic Party, willingness to take on the Southern uh, the Southern Party. So there were politicians around willing to risk their careers on this issue they they were and and they, they the thing about humphrey and as you say that was a I, I thought that was a superb book um the thing that kind of comes across clearly there is that here is the the young hubert humphrey uh who is right out on the edge there in terms of turning his party on this issue uh, of race relations and yet by the time we get into the into the late 1960s when he's run running for president um all of that is forgotten by uh, many in his own party who see him as a much more dylan like figure someone who wants um change to come through uh, evolution is a center uh, uh, kind of uh, is a centrist and uh, and so on so it comes back to this point that you made earlier on that that change change comes in complicated um ways and and that it's not easy always to kind of track how these things happen and that even uh, if you've made a, a, a fantastic contribution earlier the next generation may forget all about that and just see you as being uh, see you as being old hat 
um, and uh, in, insufficiently radical. And I think that you know that's something that both Dylan and Humphrey, uh, to some to some degree. Um, have been seen. The difference, of course, is that Dylan gets out in 1965. He kind of recognizes that really he's done what he wants to do and that he wants to hand on, whereas kind of Humphrey keeps going, really. All, uh, going and going and life. going. And exactly. Blows himself up in the end. Talking about change, Richard, you're a, from uh, England. You know the old joke about the London bus. You wait and wait and wait, and then three of them come at the same time. Uh, Lenin famously said, not about the 60s, but about his period, that uh, entire decades or centuries are made in a week. In some ways, Dylan lived through both a period where nothing changed, in some ways, the 50s, and then the 60s where everything seemed to change. Yeah, I think that's right. And, you know, he he's there at kind of one of those pivot moments uh, in American history. Um, but as as things, as the kind of the turn begins to happen, he's very much an Eisenhower and Kennedy person, rather than even though he stays on in the Johnson administration, rather than someone who's kind of moving into the into the next phase. But, I'm guessing he he probably wasn't very keen on LBJ's sharp elbows, very different background, very different kind of personality. Yeah, initially the two men uh, did not really seem to get on, that uh, Johnson did not trust uh, Dylan. He thought that he was, uh, you know, A, because of the, the difference in, in social background that they had, but also because he saw Dylan as a Kennedy man, and so he distrusted him. Interestingly, um, he's another one of those characters who, once he worked with Dylan, uh, came to respect him very quickly. When he won the 1964 uh, election, uh, Dylan uh, uh, had said to him all along and had and said to Kennedy as well that, that you know, that's when I'm going to go. D uh, D Johnson flies him up to the LBJ ranch, pleads with him uh, to stay, kind of gives him the full Johnson treatment. Eventually, Dylan says, well, look, I'll stay. Did he get really close? Wasn't the Johnson treatment to get really close? It's, you know, it's, it's to basically do whatever is necessary to get the result that he wants. Sometimes that's charming people. Uh, sometimes that is physically intimidating them. Uh, with uh, with Johnson, uh, with uh, Dylan, he gave him the full charm treatment. He was kind of having people phoning in. He was kind of saying, oh, you know, I just can't do it without you. We need to save the world together was one of his uh, one of his phrases. Um, so eventually, Dylan said, "Well, I'll stay on for six months longer, just so you can find the right uh, find the he, right." He got, so Dylan got the full LBJ. Let, let's um, go back to this term, the Dylan era. As you said, it was a term uh, invented by President Halstein of the European Economic Community. Was he? Was it part of a debate both in Europe and America about? an America of the Marshall Plan, of the relationship between America, not just in Europe, but America and the world in both economic and political and perhaps even military terms? Yeah, very much so, because it's one of the reasons why uh, Dylan gets brought back to the State Department by John Foster Dulles, the Secretary of State, because they recognize that the need for economic foreign policy It's something we're very familiar with now. But it was a really it was a new concept in the post-war world. Um, and so, you know, Dylan is brought back because he has an expertise in finance and trade and uh, economics and, and these things. 
So, you know, he's he does things like setting up development um, loan banks for uh, for what, what in at that stage was called the third world. Um, he uh, does things like the Alliance for Progress, which um, is about kind of uh, trying to uh, lend money and and set up infrastructure projects throughout Latin America. Um, and uh, he sets up the OECD um, and reconfigures the OECD. Um, has uh, there's a gap round uh, called the Dylan round. So in all of these kind of ways, and we we see the influence of that today. So like even even this week, Andrew, the OECD, this. Uh, organization that Dylan was so central to establishing uh, announced a, a new uh, a new agreement um, a global treaty to um, deal with taxation for these uh, digital behemoths um, that has that have kind of perplexed uh, various governments on how to tax these kind of massive companies like Amazon and uh, Facebook and Google and Apple and so on. So, you know, you can trace that right back to Dylan, that the architecture that he put in place uh, in uh, established in 1960, when he was uh, the, the last year of the Eisenhower administration, is still there having an impact um, in the in, in this period, right literally this week as we as we speak. Everything comes back to Dylan. Um, We've got a, a <laughs> Both show. Of them. Another with another very distinguished historian, Jennifer Burns, who I think she teaches at Stanford. She has a new book out in the fall called Milton Friedman, The Last Conservative. It's a major biography of, of Friedman. What did Dylan think, if not of Reagan or Nixon, but of this new school of economic thought? I mean, had he read, did he read Hayek? Did he read Friedman? Was he a skeptic? Did he see it as Bush later put it as voodoo economics. Well, you 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 know as well as I do from uh, from growing up in the in the UK that there was a, a town that there is a town or a city uh, in the UK called uh, Milton Keynes. Um, yes, and the uh, the the reason it's always said why it's called Milton Friends, uh, Keynes is because it's supposed to be uh, a combination of Milton Friedman and John Maynard Keynes. In some ways, that that represents uh, Douglas Dillon because. You know what uh, yeah. he in the in the nineteen early nineteen sixties, as they uh, as they said, including Milton Friedman himself, we're all Keynesians now. Um, so you know, I think what uh, Dylan did, he was very interested in these kind of things. What he was interested in doing was kind of taking this kind of consensus of Keynesianism, but kind of giving it this kind of more conservative, uh, Republican. Kind of edge and doing things like, for example, uh, in the 1964 Revenue Act, uh, drastically reducing uh, taxation. Eventually, uh, the Keynesians, like um, uh, Paul Samuelson, for example, um, uh, supported this and, and were kind of very keen on this idea. Initially, they had been opposed to it, but the, it was remarkable just how much. Uh, the that kind of the tax rates were brought down across the different bands. Um, the lowest band, for example, came down from twenty percent to fourteen percent. The highest from ninety-one to seventy. So, you know, this was a this, there was a real sense in which kind of Dylan was somebody who was in tune with the kind of the thinking of the time, uh, trying to kind of adapt it and to and to you and to think about how it could be applied politically. 
And anyone who's been to Milton Keynes knows it's a dreadful place. It's I think that I, I I think that's a bit harsh. If I well, might say, it's, it's certainly Douglas Dillon would have been a fish out of water in Milton Keynes. I'm not sure if you can combine Milton Friedman and Maynard Keynes. Do you think? I mean, if there is a, a, a criticism of, of Dillon or his world that there was too much affability, that he might have been slightly too malleable as a character and that men like him should have taken uh, uh, a, a more of a stand against the beginnings. I mean, it's always easy in retrospect, of course, and you know that better than anyone as a historian. But understanding that the winds of change were about to blow away his world, his party, his assumptions, that again, in retrospect, he, he, he might have taken a more aggressive stand um, in favor of his Republican Party? I think that uh, it would be unfair to characterize him as not taking a stand. Um, that, I mean, he's very clear uh, in taking various stands throughout his career. And if you, if you read the newspapers in uh, the early 1960s, uh, he's seen as the future of the Republican Party. Uh, it's described as modern republicanism, um, is the likes of him and Christian Herter and Nelson Rockefeller. It's rather like the Brazilian economy, uh, 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 Richard. It's always in the future. Well, that's 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 always the case. But 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 in some ways, um, they 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 are the future because although Nixon loses in '60, he comes back in '68. Nelson Rockefeller is the governor is the governor of New York and will become a vice president of the United States. So an unpopular one, uh, hated an unpo by the right. The, the, so you're you're absolutely right that you, we can look back and we can see that you know he's Goldwater. Um, this exactly as you say. This is what will happen to Rockefeller when he's uh, vice president. He'll be ditched by uh, by Ford because uh, he's unacceptable to the right. So you can see that trajectory. On the other hand, when you see it through the eyes of the early 1960s, Goldwater delivers one of the worst election results for the Republicans. He's not seen as the, as the future. Dylan is seen as taking a stand uh, by um, being in the in, by, by standing first with Kennedy and then with Johnson. Uh, the, it's Rockefeller, it's Nixon. Um, they're they're seen as the as the future, and and they genuinely, I mean, Nixon, uh, very controversial because of Watergate, obviously, nevertheless, is one of the most consequential uh, yeah. of of Amer of American presidents, and ironically, today, in, in seen in terms of republicans republicanism today. Um, would be seen as a kind of a centrist, a kind of center left on the spectrum of of republicanism. So, apparently in the Democratic Party, we did a show yesterday on food stamps, and I, I never understood the role of of, of Nixon um, in that. Where where do you think um, Dylan would be politically? Would he be a, a conservative Democrat? Would he be comfortable in the Clinton wing, if there still is a Clinton wing of the Democrat? A Bill Clinton wing of the Democratic Party. Yeah, it's it's difficult to know where he would be today. Certainly, he always remained a Republican. Um, so, I mean, he lived through the Clinton administration. Um, he kind of lived well into his nineties. Um, so, you know, he remain he remains a Republican. 
Um, but I think it, I think you are onto something in the sense that the thing about Dylan was that he was part of that generation that was essentially globalist. That you mentioned the Marshall Plan before. Um, I've talked about things like the OECD and the GATT rounds and these kinds of things. And the UN, that, obviously. Exactly. So, so there's a kind of there's a, a sense in which that post-war generation. Uh, for them, it was all about globalization. It was about putting in, in place the architecture uh, for globalization. And the Clinton administration uh, in the 1990s, in, in many ways, is, is the apotheosis uh, of globalization. Um, so I think there, there, there is a kind of a sense of continuity there, even though he's always a, a Republican. I think that he probably would have been uncomfortable uh, with the retreat uh, into um, a, a more isolationist way of uh, seeing the world, uh, but, and yeah, obviously the tone, and I'm sure, uh, and the tone of killed him, right? And the I mean, and the, t the tone of politics as well uh, he, is something he's the anti Donald Trump. I mean, I can't imagine anyone more the opposite in every conceivable sense than than Douglas Dillon. Yeah, I think I think that that Dylan's uh, disposition, his political philosophy, the way the way in which he uh, sees the world, uh, is very is very different uh, to the to uh, to Donald Trump. Um, and I don't know, think I, uh, I don't suppose that Donald Trump would have uh, would have cared much for Douglas Dylan either. Finally, um, uh, Richard, we started with one Dylan, the great Bob Dylan. Let's end with two Dylans. Uh, uh, Dylan's last album, Rough and Rowdy Ways, which I think is one of his great masterpieces, has a song called Murder Most Foul, which I think is a 70-minute song, perhaps his last recorded piece of work, about the JFK murder, a, a, a piece of music astonishingly nostalgic for another age, for the, the death of innocence in America. Is there something about that, do you think, in, in your Dylan too? I mean, he 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 worked for JFK, Eisenhower, and then LBJ, as you say, got sent packing, ultimately didn't want to work with LBJ. Did he recognize that something had changed with the assassination in Dallas? I, I think there's there's no doubt about it that anybody at the time recognized that this was something that was a profound assault on not just for them personally but on the the American body politic uh, if you like that uh, there was something about the uh, the perceived grace of of John F Kennedy the uh, the sense of effortless ease which he had um, and seeing the destruction of that, on the other hand, I think there was in the early part of the Johnson administration um, a real sense that, you know, actually um, the United States was uh, moving forward, that the assassination for all the tragedy of it had actually provided the political um, uh, kind of heft, if you like, or will for people to come together to pass things like uh, the first of all the Revenue Act, but much more importantly the civil rights legislation mm. um, and the the Voting Right Acts and uh, so on. That these things really were making a difference to uh, American politics. Of course, the thing that really changes it on all levels uh, is the Vietnam War, which kind of sucks the United States in and changes. Uh, the nature of debate, including squandering the financial le and economic legacy which Dylan had left, that uh, the United and even States ruining the the reputations of brave politicians like Hubert Humphrey. 
And absolutely ruining ruining reputations. But don't forget that uh, Dylan had delivered 50 months of economic boom. It was the longest boom in, in uh, American modern uh, peacetime history. Um, and he'd done it without overheating the economy. So inflation was under control. Of course, the problem with the, the Vietnam War is that it it kind of stokes inflation. So as well as all the the elements of the war itself and the culture war that goes with that and uh, the, the military aspects, it also begins this kind of cycle uh, of American economic uh, difficulty kind of um, fed by inflation, uh, which will kind of drive throughout the, uh, the late 60s and, and well into the 70s, throughout the 70s, actually.